Would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 8? If you uh, don't have a Bible, please use one of the pew Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you uh, have personally, feel free to take that one and keep that as our gift to you. Wonderful line that we just sang in one of the songs, thy rich promises in me fulfill. Goes along very, very well with what we'll be studying today in God's word. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That's a good definition of faith, to have a conviction of something that you cannot see. And today, we're going to be challenged in the area of faith. You will be challenged not just for a small baby step, but perhaps to take a large step in your walk with the Lord in your faith. One that would be reflected in Hebrews 11.1, 1, that you would have a conviction that God is going to do something even though you can't quite see it yet. As you fast forward in your mind, as you go through all of your resources of what you've observed the Lord do, it could be that God would call you to do something that you can't quite see how that's going to work. And yet you might take that step of faith to accomplish it. What we're going to see in God's word today is that God's plan to do something extraordinary with your life is two-parted. One part is he has to have the power. He has to have the willingness. He has to have the plan to make that happen. And the other side of that is that you and I have to not only be willing, but oftentimes we have to step out on faith. All that to take us to our text here. Matthew chapter 8 is what we're going to be studying. It's a great time if you're new to our study because the Lord has just finished the Sermon on the Mount, the best teaching that man has ever heard. These disciples and those hundreds of people that were gathered there got to hear and so there has been incredible teaching going on by Jesus Christ. But now, now the disciples are going to be taught a lesson, yes, by Jesus, but more so by someone who they would have never expected they could learn something from, a different kind of teacher. We find the setting for this in, if you look at verse number one of Matthew 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Jesus Christ is on his journey to the cross. That's where he's going. He's at the beginning of his earthly ministry. He has performed several miracles, just finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's really toward the beginning of his earthly ministry. And so what he's going to do on his way to the cross is he is going to add, they already know that he's man, he was 100% man, but now he's going to convince people that he is also God. How would someone convince others that they were God? Well, he's going to do this by doing what you and I cannot do. Jesus is going to do the supernatural. He's going to show that he has authority over sickness. He has authority over nature. 
Jesus even would show these witnesses that he has authority over death. He will prove that he is God before he lays his life down for the sins of the world. Specifically, he right now is going to a place called Capernaum. When we think of Capernaum, it's a great opportunity for you to look in the back of your Bible at those maps that are there. For those of you that can see this map, it's a blessing to look on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. One thing that will strike you if you get a chance to visit the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum is the smallness of it. It's hard to get a scale with that picture that's right there. When we think of a big lake, we think of maybe Lake Michigan or Lake Huron, and it's nothing like that. You can see across in most places. And even the town of Capernaum, a small town, this town would be the earthly headquarters, if you will, for Jesus when he ministered for those three years. He used that as his home area because that was the home of Andrew and Peter and James and John. And I could understand why someone would want to make this their headquarters. It is gorgeous. The weather is beautiful. It is so lovely and really it's unchanged after a couple thousand years. You can go and visit this place and we're going to talk in just a moment about the synagogue that is there. You can read God's word in that very synagogue. You can go to the place where uh, Peter's mother-in-law was healed. I want to spend some time before I start reading in verse 5 to give you a word of explanation that I think is appropriate. It's a question that I've asked. Maybe you have had, maybe you've asked it too. Sometimes when we study the Gospels, we'll read an account of something, and then we read the same story in a different Gospel, but something is slightly changed. Anybody had that experience before? I know I have. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, which one is right? You know, was it one angel at the tomb or two angels at the tomb? Which one is it? When we look at this picture of the Gospels, God has given us a complete picture of the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have a resource available to you. I think we put it in the bulletin, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's a website called gotquestions.org. And if it's not in your website, write that down, gotquestions.org. Refrain from looking it up right now, please. If I see you looking down, I think that's what you're doing gotquestions.org, and then type in Harmony of the Gospels. And what you'll find is a very concise and good explanation of why there are some differences in the Gospels. If you can imagine this, the testimony of God the Son, Jesus Christ, given from four witnesses, four different audiences, and four different backgrounds of those that were writing. One individual, Matthew, was a tax collector. He's going to have a different slant on the story of Jesus. Another individual named Mark, unfortunately, I'm going to describe him as a known quitter, but that helps me to relate to him a little bit. Another individual, Luke, was a doctor, a Roman doctor, writing this as an account where it would be credible. Oh, Theophilus, I'm writing this down so you will be assured of this. He also wrote Acts. And then a Jewish fisherman all writing about the same life, but from a different perspective. We can be confident that we have the complete picture of Jesus' life that he wanted us to have. 
We can also be confident that we haven't even scratched the surface as far as what he did. In the end of the book of John, it says, There are all so many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they were written every one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. We have only scratched the surface of his life, but we have a complete picture. I mention this because we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 8 in this account, but there's a, a parallel account in Luke 7, and I'm going to refer to that a few times and allow that to give us some commentary. Let's go ahead and look at verses 5 through 7. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Let's stop there. So we find a centurion coming on the scene. When we look at centurions in the Bible, they were Roman soldiers. They weren't always from Rome. In fact, likely they were not. They were kind of probably a mixed breed of Jew and Gentile, like a Samaritan. But they were getting paid to be a Roman soldier. Likely over up to 100 soldiers, might have been less, 80 or 60. Remember the smallness of the Sea of Galilee. How many, you know, 100 soldiers could cover that area pretty well in that time of unrest. This centurion soldier comes to Jesus, and we learn a few things about him. He is part of the backbone of the Roman army, and he knew what it was to be a soldier. You did not advance to be a centurion unless you knew the army and unless you knew how it worked. And that's going to come into play in what he says in just a moment. He understood what you had to do to advance He understood who was over you and who was not over you. Background of the Roman army. Every time centurions are mentioned, at least three times in the New Testament, they're mentioned in a positive light. It paints them in a great light, which I imagine the Jews would have hated that kind of record. But that's what we find. We know of this specific centurion that he's a compassionate person. He goes and requests healing or help for someone that he was closely connected with. Could have been his slave, could have been someone under him in the military. Um, Doulos is the word uh, word slave in the Greek, and there's a picture of it was a young slave, so it could have even been a child of someone that he was close with. With all of that said, he comes and he asks very much so for healing for this one. Jesus, help me with this situation. I wonder what the centurion thought about Jesus at this point. What what do you think he knew? I believe personally from the record that he thought Jesus was something special. There were already miracles that had taken place. There were huge crowds that were going on. But the people that he liked, the Jewish people, he had helped them. We see from the account in Luke 7 that some Jews come to him and said, you should do what this guy asks because he helped build our synagogue. That synagogue right there on the Sea of Galilee, either he financed it or he used his influence to have it built. He knew what it was to be a good military man and he knew what it was to keep peace in the area. 
And if you want a good little description, if you write in your Bible and want to put a description next to this centurion, you can just write these two words, good guy. He was a good guy. He was compassionate, but he finds himself now in need. Jesus is about to prove his authority. He is about to show that he has authority over sickness. But there is already someone present in the scenario that knows about this authority. When we look at this centurion, we find, first of all, that the incredible confidence that he had in Jesus. He had an incredible confidence in this man, Jesus Christ. He knew these Jews. He knew their religion. He likely knew they were looking for some kind of a deliverer. And I am taken back how often in the New Testament people that were on the outside of the Jewish people recognized Jesus as God before those on the inside of the Jewish people. We see the confidence that he has in Jesus in his response. Remember, Jesus said, okay, you have someone sick, I'll come and I'll heal them. Look in verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man understood an authority structure. Of the thousands of soldiers that would be in the Roman army, he knew what it was to have rank. He knew the consequence if someone did not obey an order or if they ignored an order. So he understood authority. And when he comes to Jesus Christ here, he is stressing to Jesus... I recognize that you have authority to do what I'm asking you to do. It is such an authority that he recognizes, I don't don't need you to come to my house. Clearly, you're so powerful, you can just speak the words. That's his request. Don't come to my home. Simply speak the word. Maybe you can remember some other miracles when a word was spoken and a miracle took place. If we go all the way back to the beginning, remember that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word that we use is ex nihilo. God didn't have a a Play-Doh set and he didn't have all these things to work with. He didn't have some goo floating around from a big, or that would make a big bang. Out of nothing... God spoke, and the world came into existence. The beauty of everything that we see, a miracle just by him saying the word. And I love that this soldier's military knowledge translates into his theological knowledge. I understand the chain of command. This sickness will have no choice but to leave my servant If you just say the word, he is humble, he is compassionate, and he is generous. There 
about to learn about the authority of Jesus, but that's not the main message. It does stand out, the centurion servant getting healed, and Jesus does heal him, but that's not the main message. Something is going to be said here that is not said in any other place in the Bible about Jesus and his ministry. Jesus is going to be astounded. We do find Jesus was astounded one other time, but it wasn't for a positive reason. It was for a negative reason. Because of the lack of faith of the Jewish people, at one point Jesus was astounded. And so next we see the commendation from Jesus after he hears these words. And we find that commendation starting in verse 8. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, I don't want to tap into your pride, but wouldn't you love to be on the receiving end of a compliment like that? Angels, look at that one down there. Look at the faith, how they are stepping out. They don't know how it's going to end, but they're being obedient. And they want to be sensitive to what I want them to do, and they're stepping out on faith. I would love for that to be my testimony. I racked my brain searching for illustrations of faith in my own life that I could share, and I thought I'd just, I fall so short. My faith is so weak. Clearly, he had a need. He had someone that he wanted healed. He had heard about this healer. He knew he had authority to do it. But what we find here is that Jesus' first words to the centurion, or Jesus' first words after he hears what the centurion says, are not a response to the centurion. But instead, he, he talks to the people that are around him, the disciples. What he says is, You guys must learn what this man knows. If you're going to do something extraordinary, and I've got a plan for you, for his disciples, you must learn to step out on faith. Be sensitive to what I want you to do. Have confidence that I, on my side, have the power to do it. But you have to do your part, and what you will learn from this man is the faith. Who has the greatest faith of anybody Jesus had encountered up to that point? He wasn't even a Jew. They would have hated this. Christ wants them to learn about this. So he had authority over the disease, and... He was teaching them about faith because they were going to need faith to do the incredible task that was ahead of them. And then he gives a warning. He gives a conclusion. There's a conclusion to this interaction, a message of danger. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The main message of this centurion is not that Jesus healed his servant. The main message is faith. And right along with that, he is letting these Jews know it is not only you, Jewish people, who are going to be reclining with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They knew about this feast that was coming. They had read their Torah. Many of them had memorized much of the Torah. And of course, Jesus, with his perfect mind, had it all memorized. They knew about this feast. And when he says, there are some coming from east and west that will recline at table, this would repel so many Jewish people. We're looking forward to being at that table. All the Jews thought they were going to get in because of their heritage. And they could not fathom the idea of a centurion or a Gentile or a Samaritan double dipping in the hummus with Jesus the Messiah? No, that can't be. There is strong language that is being sent to these Jews. And then we find very much so after this sign that Jesus makes good on his promise. Look at verse 13. And the centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. We won't spend a lot of time on this except to say when Jesus healed, Jesus healed completely and he healed instantly. Some will foolishly try to take this text and make it mean something for today that it does not mean that if you have enough faith, there can be physical healing. I've sat, I've sat with a woman who had a leader tell her that someone that she loved would not have died if she would have had enough faith. And that should make you gasp. People will take the words of Jesus and misuse them. When this healing took place, that's not the case for today, and that's a study for another day. But when Jesus healed, it was instant, it was complete. Nobody ever said, oh yeah, Joshua on the other side, he's on the mend now, getting a little better. That was never said. It was instant. Can you imagine the, in our day, we would call it the disability line. Disability line in the region all around the Sea of Galilee, how much smaller it got? The beggars, all the beggars that used to go and beg because they couldn't work, where where are they at? I brought some extra coins today to give to them. And Jesus would heal and he would completely use himself up physically to help all of these that are around. And we find that in the next verses. Look at verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The world was changed 
Jesus Christ was proving, I am not a mere man, but I am deity. I am God. He's on his way to the cross so that he could die for your sins and for mine. He would rise from the dead. And I'm going to close by asking you, not a baby step question, not a simple application, but are you willing on this day to say, God, I would like to take a big step of faith. Faith is the conviction of something you have not seen. And so if you've seen some other guys do it, well, there might be some faith involved. If you've seen a pattern, read about it in a book, yeah, maybe some faith. But how about you today? Would you be willing to say, God, what do you want me to do to step out in a huge step of faith? And praise the Lord, sometimes we see some individuals that God uses, and I know I, like you, are surprised at who He uses sometimes, right? God doesn't always use the, the you know, president of the student body and the, and the beauty queen winner. God has a habit of using simple people like me. But we have to be willing to step out. And oftentimes, God allows us to see that wonderful result. Here, the young servant was healed. Sometimes we don't see the result. I want to close our time by going to the great faith chapter. If you don't mind, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me? I'm going to read two verses from Hebrews 11. Of course, I started with that first verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But there's going to be a challenge for us. Yes, to be faithful in the small things, but also to be sensitive to God. Allow Him to lead you to do something bigger, something greater, even if you're not sure how it's going to turn out, which is the definition of faith. Let's read starting in verse 4. Five, no, six. Look at verse six with me. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And there are many listed in this chapter, and I love studying these stories. But there's a very good lesson for us in verse number 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That has to be the first step. The first step for you to do something, take a big step of faith, is to understand that this world is not your home. You're just passing through. And when we look to our future, 
God has the resources, the power, and the plan for you to be used to do something amazing, something extraordinary. But He's not going to force you to do it. Be sensitive to Him. And even if you can't understand it, even if you've not seen it before, have a confidence that God is going to do something. And then have faith that He will put you right in the middle of what He wants to accomplish in His big plan. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to You as Your Son Jesus used to do when He was here on this earth sneaking away early in the morning to pray, to have that time alone with you. And we thank you for this time to study these miracles, the casting out of demons and and the healing of this young servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We thank you that Jesus Christ, in his perfect way, proved that he was not only 100% man, but he was 100% God. He was the only one who was sufficient to pay for our sins on the cross. Thank you. Thank you for the undeniable truth that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. And we thank you that that gives us confidence. And so today, Father, we look forward to the future, to that day in heaven. And you have not left us in this place to be idle. You've left us here to be faithful. And there's a lot to be said for consistency and faithfulness in the small things, and we do need that. But Heavenly Father, every now and then there's an individual who has so much faith in you, so much confidence, and they're not sure how it's going to work out, but they step out. And then they add their faith to your resources, which are unlimited. And we thank you that that is how you work such a wonderful plan. While we have our heads bowed, I want to ask the piano to play through and give you a chance to pray. Very specifically, I would like for you, maybe the Lord is leading you in a certain way, something He wants you to do, somewhere He wants you to go, someone He wants you to connect with. Pray about that if He's leading you. If you don't have anything specific that you're already being, have a burden for, would you pray the simple prayer, God, would you show me what you want me to do that would require me to act in faith? And then be silent. Maybe in the upcoming days, upcoming weeks, he'll make it obvious how you can step out in faith. We have an audience with the Father, those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Christ died on the cross for our sins. It could be there's someone hearing this message for the first time today that you are that you are a sinner, but you can have forgiveness of those sins because of the work of Christ on the cross. I would invite you to pray a prayer of repentance. Recognize Jesus Christ, the one who paid for your sins, and if you will just ask him to forgive you, he promises to make you a forgiven child of the King.